0: Well, good evening. Welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Welcome. March is Women's History Month, so we rightfully celebrate the women in our lives, the women of the world, and, of course, the women serving in the U.S. military. Women have fought long and hard for the rights naturally accorded to men. Among those are the right to serve shoulder-to-shoulder with their male counterparts in the U.S. military from the Revolutionary War when women could only serve as cooks and nurses to today when women serve in all branches, ranks, and jobs. In 2015, the Department of Defense opened all combat roles to women. As of 2020, our military members total 480,000. Women on active duty make up 69,000 or 14.4 percent, and women in the Reserve and National Guard total 85,920 or 17.9 percent. Tonight we're pleased to bring you a very special conversation with Rear Admiral retired Nancy Lescavich. This remarkable woman joined the US Navy in 1972 as a nurse. She consistently distinguished herself in every assignment and consequently rose steadily to greater roles of responsibility and of course promotion. Tonight, she'll share with us her experience and her views on many, many issues. But first, here are your dates of note for March. March is Women's History Month. The third is the Naval Reserve birthday. The fourth is Hug a GI Day. And the fifth is the birthday of the Navy Seabees. The 13th is Canine Veterans Day. The 15th, American Legion's birthday. 21st, Rosie the Riveter Day, 25th, Medal of Honor Day, and the 29th is National Vietnam Veterans Day. Here now is our conversation with the Admiral, Nancy Lascavage.
1: Well, thanks, Doug, and it's a great honor to be on your show. Thank you for asking me. Indeed, I had a great ride in the United States Navy, Actually, my career ran just about 38 years on active duty, which I never expected. I only joined for three years, but I became very passionate about being a naval officer in state. I have to emphasize that now I am a private citizen, so in our interview, my thoughts and words in no way speak on behalf of the Navy or the Department of Defense.
0: Fair enough. At the time you joined the Navy 1972, women accounted for only 2% of U.S. armed force members and 8% of the officers. And as of 2018, those numbers increased to 16% military members and 19% in the officer corps. What was the prevailing attitude towards women when you joined? And how have you seen that changed over your career?
1: That's a, a great question. Be glad to talk about it. And what was going on in the early 70s when I joined is actually vastly different than what we see today. In regard to people, the various generations that are joining the military uh, and their differences, the evolution of our society, the ways that we're now fighting, our technology is different the cyber world has been created as well as artificial intelligence. And there are many new danger zones in the world. Just to go over some statistics, in 2020, on active duty, women now number 14.4% and the garden reserve is a little higher, 17.9%. Minorities make up 30% of active duty. And in the reserve and guard, 24%. Married on active duty is 57%. And in the guard and reserve, they're 48%. Dual marriages in the military, meaning both spouses are on active duty, is 6.7%. And the reserve and guard is 2.6%. The numbers of women vary widely by service. Again, we make up about one-fifth of officers in every service except for the Marine Corps. Women only make up 8%. On May 20th, 2020, according to Stars and Stripes, although women are making up an increasing proportion of the armed forces, female troops are 28% more likely than men to leave the military early and their exit is largely based on family-related and cultural issues. Uh, I'd like to highlight seven things why we do that. First of all, there are problems with the military organizational culture, meaning, for example, we have a lack of female mentors. The second reason is sexism, especially in fields dominated by males. I found this as well have to work harder just to get noticed. The third thing is an uncertain work schedule. The fourth thing is effects of deployment on family lives. The fifth thing is family planning issues, pregnancies for women, and all that that brings. The sixth thing is dependent care issues. The military in some places continues to have body, daycare hours, or waiting lists just to get into daycare. And the seventh thing, sadly, is sexual assault, investigations, and sexual harassment. In 2019 alone, there were 7,825 sexual assaults in the military, and that was up 3% from 2018. Now, the military has taken significant steps to build a, a more diverse and inclusive force aimed at attracting top talent. In particular, the military has opened many more doors for women than when I came in. However, women, racial and ethnic minorities remain, I feel, underrepresented in parts of the military. And sadly, that's particularly at the highest levels of leadership. The military also opened ranks to openly gay individuals in recent years.
0: What are they doing to change the culture? Because we have interviewed folks on racial discrimination, on sexual discrimination and assault, and on members of the LGBT community and the commonality between all of them was that we have these regulations, but in actuality, they're not strictly adhered to and the culture isn't fully embracing the regulations.
1: Well, this is a theme actually running through America and it's a very long evolution. If it ever happens, and and hopefully it does, but it, it can't occur overnight. The new Secretary of Defense, former General Austin, one of the first things he's put out as the new Secretary of Defense, he's on cultural issues. In his Senate Armed Services testimony, he said to accomplish mission, we must battle enemies within our ranks. As a general, he worked with this for years. He must admit the hard truth. We must do more. President Biden has ordered a 90-day commission to pursue solutions. The general says he doesn't want to wait 90 days to take action. The F Austin has ordered by the 5th of February he wants a list of sexual assault and sexual harassment prevention and accountability measures that were taken up in the last year that show promise as well as data-driven assessment of those that do not. He wants our people to show how they do oversight, how they show relevant data over the past decade and victim support efforts and advocacy. He wants data about how the department moves towards addressing sexual misconduct within a broader violence prevention network. That's an interesting twist he's taking. He wants recent data and information on most recent initiatives towards preventing violence. He wants most recently released integrated violence prevention policy. And he says, don't be afraid to get creative. He's uh, appointing a senior general or flag officer or senior executive to a special commission, along with the senior enlisted person. He will host the senior leaders meeting and he wants an update on progress and challenges. He states, this is a leadership issue and we will lead. This memo was sent to the senior Pentagon leadership as well as Commanders of Combatant Commands, Defense Agency, and Department of Defense Field Activity Directors.
0: Well, one of the big issues is that when something happens, the investigation takes place within the unit. So that uh, if the command structure of a unit is predisposed to continuing the uh, practice despite uh, directives then uh, justice is not fully realized if at all and uh, some of the young ladies i've talked to who have been victims of this have said that they are pushing for an independent investigative arm that would be outside of the unit and the uh, the command structure where the the issue happened what do you think about that
1: Well, speaking as a private citizen, I really pondered this for a while. First of all, you need very clear policies and to be able to tweak them, again, with what's working and what isn't. Actually, the military conducts a lot of investigations on its own. And perhaps, as you mentioned, uh, what some of the women feel would be better I think, would to have more objective investigations. I think the sooner people report anything that they feel is wrong, right away. This is hard depending on where you're stationed and the people who are around you and your chain of command. And also, if possible, to produce evidence, whether it's emails, some sort of documentation, proof, pictures, whatever, if a command does the investigation within its own command, is that always the best thing?
0: I would take that one step further to the ability to report an incident to somebody other than your direct superior. Now, that goes against the grain of chain of command, I know, but uh, that's part of the issue because they feel in units where this is alive and well, that to report it to your superior just begins the cover-up.
1: And that's where I feel each military member have to be able to trust someone to talk to about the occurrence and right away. I mean, just look at what's going on at Fort Hood. You know, in some of our commands, there's something very amiss. And, and also, I believe men as well do have this happen to them. I don't think it's, it's just a, a women's issue.
0: Well, it's not, and the problem there is even worse because men are reluctant to report that they've been sexually assaulted because that is antithetical to the male culture, right? The male psyche. We're supposed to be strong. How could that happen? I'm weak. And and it's more destructive because they, aside from that, hold it inside. It's PTS, right? So we get into self-medication sometimes and, and that downward spiral to self-destruction.
1: Right. And that certainly doesn't help the person or anyone who, who's surrounding that person to get into self-destructive activities, which leads to uh, a whole new spiral for the person, and and also put people in their place if you can. And honestly, in throughout my lengthy career, a few times I've had to do that, but some people may not feel comfortable doing that, and some people don't understand uh, what they're doing or saying is intimidating but it is and if the person's uncomfortable you know try to speak up and handle it on on the individual level but along with that comes the chain of command in the military and people may feel intimidated they may feel it would ruin their career so it it could depend on where they are in the chain of command
0: you know you're a person that is a take charge, can-do individual, and throughout your career, and I suspect throughout anything else you've done in your life, you've steadily advanced to larger responsibilities, always proving yourself more capable and fostering substantial improvements to the organization, the facility, the people, and the process. What is it that drives you to push people to be their best and not settle for the, quote, Uh, We've always done it this way, unquote, mentality.
1: I came in as a very quiet young lady. Actually, at the time that Vietnam was descending, women were just coming into being, if you will, with the whole women's revolution, but I was very kind of humble and quiet. I credit the military, certainly, with making me the person I am today, and along the my journey, if you will, through various things that happened to me along the way, whether they appeared bad or good, I learned from them all. And when I did become an admiral, like, what a great honor. And I was in charge of about 5,000 nurses around the world. And I thought, what can I instill in them when I go to the various bases? and talk to them about being officers in the military. And I came up with three things, and I call them the P words. And it was passion. And I discovered when I put my uniform on every day that I had such a great passion for being an officer in the military and everything that goes with that. And I would tell the nurses, when they're doing that, if they don't have a special feeling in their heart and in their mind about what a great privilege it is to be in the military and be able to do what you do, then they needed to maybe leave and give that honor to someone else. And the second P is perseverance. And my father, who right out of high school, went into D-Day and Battle of the Bulge in the U.S. Army, whenever his kid, Nancy, the Admiral, would say to my dad, oh, this is going on, this problem's going on, he would look at me with steel blue eyes and say one word, and that was perseverance. And i passed that on to whomever I could, that no matter what hits you in life and in the military, it's a very unique situation. You know, you're told to go this place. Maybe you don't want to go there. You're told to go into war, whatever. Plus, life happens with your families, etc. And then the last T word is preeminent. And I got that in graduate school where I had a great opportunity to attend University of Pennsylvania and did some work and courses at the Wharton School of Business. And Wharton's message is, whatever you're doing, make it preeminent. In other words, to be the best, no matter what you're doing. If you're swabbing decks, be the best at that. You know, if you're delivering medical care, be the best at that. And I would see when when I would go around the world visiting our military facilities, some people tacked those things up that I said to remind them every day. And that was actually thrilling. Always have a great goal to be the best, no matter what you're doing.
0: So along your way, I'm sure you encountered some opposition from maybe folks that felt bad because you dared to do something or ask something they did not, or resistance from the male-dominated command culture. How much of a issue was that for you?
1: Well, the school of hard knocks really teaches you a lot. And again, coming into the Navy a very quiet individual, I soon learned that you have to stand on your own two feet and just call it like it is and if you don't agree with something and it's in your heart and mind that it's just not the right thing that you're hearing then you've got to stand up for what you feel is right you also have to know which hill you don't want to die on so if it's a little issue just let it go but if it's something big and i'm proud to say Although I came out of a bureaucracy, I am not a bureaucrat. My uh, whole focus really is what's best for the individual. In my case, what's best for the patient? And I stuck with that all the time. I'm very businesslike, very bottom line with goals and, and objectives how to get there. Now that doesn't always do well, when you're working in a in a huge bureaucracy but i think it also helps you to stand out as you know perhaps you do know what you're talking about and you end up learning how to fight the fight how to convince others that they might want to try the way you and your staff came up with that it might be better in the evolution that's going on, whatever the topic is. One of my top 10 lessons, I think, is when I've come up against someone who is in a leadership position, but not necessarily a leader, and this goes on not only in the military, but everywhere, probably anybody listening can identify at least one or more of people who were their bosses, but they weren't so good. What you do is when you end up being in the position of being a boss, you learn from those people, from that experience, what not to do, what not to emulate. And I think that really is the key to it all. And again, while you're in that, keep persevering. Keep your eye on where you want to end up and how you want to be and that you would never be this type of boss or leader to other people.
0: The, the term leader is thrown around much too freely. A position of manager, for example, and leader are not interchangeable because not all managers or executives are leaders, as you pointed out.
1: You're exactly right, but the general public puts great faith in those titles ranks, rates, whatever, and they can be fooled, especially when this person is found out. And who knows how they got there, but they're there.
0: Yep, yep, sometimes it it, uh, <laughs> it baffles the mind. Well, so you worked at some of the highest levels in the Navy, the federal government, the state government, in fact, you're employed now by the state government as a civilian, and academia, and throughout your career, you focused on quality of services and innovation and developing your your subordinates and always thought outside the box uh, to use another cliche and were you ever called upon to assist the VA healthcare system
1: no i was not first of all when i retired over 10 years ago my plan was to try to wind down and spend maybe 3 months with my wonderful parents Well, unbeknownst to me, I had several terrible, unexpected things that happened to me, including a very bad auto accident. But that took me off the market, if you will, for several years, these personal tragedies. So once I picked myself up from all of that, I did go to the VA. However, any position that I could have used my skill set in, there were none available. You know, it is a massive bureaucracy and I, I wish them well. I would have loved to have helped them uh, with everything I've learned and the ideas I have. You know, part of the problem too is there's lots of turnover in top leadership positions depending on you know, like we just had an election, so probably I would think a lot of those people are turning over and some more promised jobs. So there are people like me out there that probably could help a, a great deal with stuff.
0: There's also people in that bureaucracy that don't want to upset the apple cart, so I get that.
1: One and, of the ba- and that's Go probably ahead. a reason why. The bureaucracy, no matter what department, coming out of the federal government or state government, just chugs along because in bureaucracies, many times people, like you said, don't want to upset the apple cart. They like it the way it is. And especially someone like me, I do upset the apple cart and actually want to look at things one one of my favorite chiefs of naval operations who taught me a lot. And he was head of the whole Navy. And, you know, he looked at all all of us admirals one day and he said, what do you all do? Why do you do it? Should it be done at all? And can someone of a lesser skill set be doing these things? And he went about, you know, trying to trim the the bureaucracy in the navy and i greatly admired him because he asked questions in bureaucracies that aren't i don't think asked as much as they should be and then he held us accountable and and i love that he really made you feel alive and again passionate about what you were doing and you had purpose and then you could spread that to your people And have them objectively look at what they were doing every day.
0: Well, one of the greatest kept secrets, in my opinion, in management in general, is, and this is something that a lot of managers won't do because they're afraid, I found that developing your subordinates to a point where they're able to step up and take your job, because in that you also develop ownership, accountability, And if you do it right, your job gets a lot easier, doesn't it?
1: You know, Doug, what you just said, actually, that scenario makes someone who's in the leadership position at the top, that makes your day. When somebody comes in and has a a program that they're offering or did something that you've been concerned about, And they come in and have the answers, the solutions, or new ideas. And, yep, that is a great person. That's someone who gets it. And they're the type of people I love. And I do anything for them, uh, whether it's trying to get them extra schooling, pushing them on to, to new and better things. But sometimes in huge bureaucracies, again, people don't want to rock the boat.
0: You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our guest tonight is Rear Admiral Retired Nancy Liscavich. One of the biggest challenges we are faced as a society is the veterans who have lost all hope and decided that self-destruction is their only alternative. I believe veteran suicide, the official number is... Like 22 a day average, but I've had many folks tell me they believe that that's not always accurate because of COVID and because of different statistical measures and accounting in different places in the country and different organizations. So is there one thing that you think could be done to cut that terrible number down? One of the things that I think is a common threat is transition from the military to the civilian world. I mean, the military does a great job getting you in, and I think they're getting better at getting you out, but I don't think they do a great job. And when folks get out of the military uh, and they've been in long enough where they've suffered from PTS or they just come home to a family that's learned to live without them or certainly a world that's changed since they were gone, um, they lose their identity. And that leads to hopelessness and sometimes homelessness and self-medication and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. Based on your experience, what do you think could be done to better connect our civilians and veterans and to try to do something meaningful to cut down this terrible statistics?
1: It is uh, an awful statistic. Again, I'm, I'm talking as a private citizen, and I'm not a mental health expert. However, I, I have noticed, you know, we've hit this area with many programs, whether they're military, VA, civilian efforts. If somebody has served our nation, no matter how long they served, we're obligated to care for them and the things that happen to them as a result of being in the military. The unique issue is healthcare systems are so varied, and when I worked up in the U.S. Senate, that was the time of healthcare reform in the mid 90s. And the senator I worked for, who came from Hawaii, Hawaii had a great healthcare system. They have to because they, they're a bunch of islands. You know, where do you go? And people from other states would come. To the office and just want to quote, adopt the Hawaii plan. And you just can't. Uh, A Rhode Island is not the same healthcare as New York, as Hawaii, as California. What I'm saying is the healthcare systems are so varied. You know, you have many remote areas, for example, uh, to big cities. So what I'm getting at is. I believe for our individuals who have served this great country that a program is tailored for their individual needs, that they have a go to place, whether it's a phone line, an online, a loved one, a buddy, or some place to go, and solidify that upfront so they don't feel all alone. You know, when they're exiting the military, um, where are they going? What's available for them? And, and they may not even be thinking of it at the time. But exiting the military is a psychological thing. And you may not even expect some of the things that are going to happen to you. So I think it's a good idea to help them with a plan. May, uh, let them know the resources available. The other thing is to further destigmatize the field of mental health. You know, even when while they're serving, I think many hold back if they're having mental health issues because they're just afraid. What will that do to my career, et cetera, et cetera? They don't many times even realize their buddies are going through the same thing, and to have programs in the military, which we do, as well as outside of the military, you know, once they launch into their new personal world, I do have to give kudos to veterans organizations who are out there uh, who do provide backup and camaraderie. You know, I noticed in thinking about this more, many, many programs out there. And there's a the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There's Vets Chat. There's all kinds of educational materials. You know, Wounded Warrior Project, Give an Hour, etc. People are really trying to help the individual. Each service has their own programs. As so I believe, the military, the VA, the individual veteran, their families, and communities must must make this an individual effort. And again, work out a plan for the vet. In other words, we have your back. And and not only that, but to capture data about what programs work and what isn't working. American Legion did a pretty good interview with former President Trump and now President Biden. And they were asked about suicide prevention and mental health concerns. When asked about that, that now President Biden has stated, within the first 200 days of taking office, my administration will publish a comprehensive public health and cross-sector approach to addressing suicide in veterans, service members and their families. In a Biden administration, DOD's Suicide Prevention Office and VA will have the resources and staff they need to make smart investments with allocated funds. I will ensure that all those in need of care have quality and timely support by strengthening coordination with stakeholders and the private sector. My administration will also tackle the issues that contribute to higher suicide risk, such as PTSD, sexual assault, and harassment. We will develop better interventions to mitigate pain and economic vulnerability and address safe firearm storage. I will increase access to mental health treatment by enforcing full mental health parity and ensuring all Americans have access to high quality mental health care, regardless of their insurance coverage. Now, that says a lot and hopefully, and it's Stuff will be moving in this
0: administration. Well hope hopefully you're right on that. Unfortunately, as was demonstrated at the end of the First World War when guys came back from Europe and of course we had the, the Spanish flu pandemic at the time which killed an awful lot of our, our folks, there was there was nothing for the veterans. They there was no realization in the in the government that some of them are gonna be damaged badly by what we now know as pts but it's been called many things the probably the best descriptor comes out of the civil war and it was at that time it was called soldier's heart and if you look at the the basic problem that creates pts oversimplified is when the mind cannot reconcile with the conscience, something that has happened or something they've been involved in or something they've seen. The, the technology has changed, but the uh, today the drone operator in Idaho, the blip on the screen is a human life. some point in time, that's got to hit home.
1: There's always hope that we can keep after this and with the data they're collecting and all the different programs Can help that number
0: come down. I think that uh, one of the biggest problems I see with all these organizations out there that are doing wonderful work, I'm going to give the the VA kudos for the programs that they are, are currently involved with and trying to improve, but there's no one place that you can go on a state or a federal level where a caregiver, for example, a family member, could look at this resource database on the web and say, okay, so what are the resources and organizations available in my area for what I think is going on if I can get Johnny to go with me to a clinic or a provider?
1: That's the key. Where is the individual? And can you line that up, that you know that stuff before you're in a crisis?
0: Some sort of guidance in that regard in my opinion, should be part of the, the separation process. Uh, I'm going to leave it that the reintegration, in my mind, is a, a tremendous influence on how well the uh, service member fares after separation.
1: I have to agree, you know, with what you said. I really think there should be a plan for the person, whether they think they need it or not.
0: Uh, Another fellow that I interviewed who is also an author and and a publisher and uh, a Vietnam vet said to me he went to his 50th class reunion. Now he was in Vietnam and and right into Cambodia and he was injured. So he was in and out in about seven months. So he went to his 50th class reunion and the folks there knew his classmates knew he had been in the service and knew he had been injured and he said they had a tough time talking to me, and I had a tough time talking to them.
1: Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're talking about. And I think that really has to be addressed on a in a bigger arena. I find anyway, in different conversations, people don't really know what the military's about, you know, and what we do go through and how we live and work. I think people do admire people who have served. You know, you see a lot of people with their baseball hats on and in the grocery store and you see people, you know, saying, thank you for your service. But I think the more we can market ourselves, those of us who have been in the military, whether it's in newspaper articles, interviews, you know, radio, TV, or some of the great movies that have been produced, all the better to get people to almost walk in our shoes, to have empathy.
0: So look, going forward, what do you believe are the biggest challenges to the US military establishment, including our newest branch, the Space Force?
1: Well, the military as well as the universe is constantly evolving. I think some of the challenges Uh, is right-sizing the military. I'm sure Secretary of Defense Austin will tackle that. How many people do you really need? How many ships? How many bases? How many planes? Submarines? What kind of weapons? You know, with everything in the cyber arena and with electronics, everything's changing. So that'll be interesting to watch as well as defining the mission and the new world order. Just where is the focus of the United States and the world? The unrest in the world. What are the current and future threats? And also in our country and the civil arena. Lingering always in the military is the housing effort. Housing our people on bases and making sure that housing's adequate. Um, Healthcare—that's always out there. The healthcare for our military costs a lot of money, and for our veterans, you know. Along with that, how should it be done? Uh, how do we train our medical teams by a delivery of their daily care? How far do you take that before you uh, have a contract to the outside world of the military to take over some things? So figuring all that out. Building alliances around the globe needs a fair amount of work. The Space Force, to me, is like a company startup defining that mission and vision of this this new thing, which now falls under the Department of the Air Force. And I think that's going to be a big evolution, taking quite a few years to really get that rolling. Unemployment for vets is a big deal. In his interview with the American Legion magazine that was published in October of 20, President Biden mentioned seven points that he would like to uh, deliver for unemployed veterans.
0: Run down the list if you would, please.
1: Number one, ensure DOD, VA and Department of Labor continue to improve here you go, Doug, the Transition Assistance Program. So it's relevant to today's job market. The second one is ensure that more transitioning service members are able to access job training and placement services prior to the end of active duty. By expanding private sector relationships through programs like SkillBridge. We will give qualified transitioning service members the opportunity to start building meaningful civilian careers as early as possible. And the third thing is work with the Department of Labor to enforce the Vietnam era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act, hiring benchmark among federal contractors and subcontractors. Fourth is Support and promote hiring of veterans and military spouses, as well as corporate mentorship between veteran owned businesses and existing contractors to support veteran entrepreneurship. Fifth is work with schools to ensure veterans and family members affected by COVID 19 can use their benefits. Number six is crack down on fraud and unfair business practicing. Practices targeting veterans and the military. And the last one is close the ninety ten loophole on the GI Bill and tuition assistance dollars to keep for-profit bad actors from raiding benefits service members and veterans have earned.
0: Well, that certainly is, is promising. I hope it uh, works out that way. It really sounds uh, encouraging to me. So look, as we get close to the end of this, as time goes on, Succeeding generations are losing historical context and being, in some cases, unfortunately fed factual inaccuracy about our history and the military in their education, in the media, and in their social orbits, especially with regard to our country and our military establishment. Uh, What would be your message to the younger generations who are, quite frankly, disconnected because of technology—
1: I'm glad you asked this question because it's a great concern for me in particular. I've been out in public now for quite a few years and have given a fair amount of speeches or appearances, and it's amazing to me what I see, and it's also amazing to me what I don't see. At a great occasion... I'll see a lot of children and families and people coming up to me after I speak and really telling me what they do in their communities and voicing their appreciation for the military. And a lot of them seem to really have a pretty good understanding of what the military is about. However, sadly, I have to say that appears to be few and far between. The, the first thing I would do, go to Arlington, where row after row of heroes are buried and have them look at the tombstones and the ages of those who gave their lives for this great country. You know, that, that can really hit home. Have the, the kids go and place, help place flags. You know, they have that wonderful wreath Across America. How how beautiful and how solemn to go to one of the cemeteries and to see that and participate in that. I would take them to museums and historic societies and go through stuff with them, teaching them, you know, about the great sacrifices that were made and the military and parades. Take them to, you know, veterans' parades, Memorial Day. Sadly, when President Clinton, I believe, was our our president, he asked a child, what is Memorial Day? And the child said, that's the day the pools open. Now, that's, that's not good. If that is how they were taught to think of Memorial Day, I would say head to the school. You know, the grade schools, the high schools, colleges. And look at what they're teaching. Don't erase our history on the military. Give the facts. And I know, I work with the Navy Club locally, and we do essay awards. And the essays generally are certainly on the topic of patriotism and the flag. And some of these children are so well Groomed and so well-spoken, the essays they write are beautiful. But again, that's just a, a few kids. I would say when you see a vet, some of them love talking about their time in the military. You know, ask them some probing questions and certainly give your appreciation for them serving.
0: That's absolutely see, that's true.
1: For, for the flag and what it represents and show respect for the vets. You know, you see that they love the baseball hats, so it's, they're easy to identify, so talk to them. And volunteer at the VA facilities and nursing homes because we've got a lot of vets there. And record veterans' histories. I'm on the board of, for example, Women in Military Service for America WIMSA, which our building is at the gates of Arlington Cemetery. For people to come in there and record their histories and see what women in particular have done in the military is just a great thing and in a very convenient place.
0: Another great resource is uh, the uh, National Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor, New York. There are quite a number of women memorialized in, um, their stories are there for people to read. It really comes down to the same problem that we have in our public education system, in my opinion, is that it can't be left all up to the teacher. The parents have to participate.
1: Exactly. Contact Congress with ideas and go to town meetings and, you know, run for an office if you're a veteran. The other is we're sometimes a very critical society, and I think it's time to really get to know the newer generations too and learn what they stand for and have respect for each other's generations. We're the baby boomers. We have Generation X, the millennials, Generation Z, and they're all about different things. And I think the more we sit down with them and talk to them about our experiences and ask them some probing questions and see what they think about stuff, all the better. You know, if you're able to visit a military base, do so. And there are cool things like air shows, the different displays you can see on military bases, uh, all the better. Because it's thrilling to see our military at work.
0: The military does need to do a better job marketing themselves. That's a great point. So look, last question, pretty much. You currently serve on the Pennsylvania Military Protection Commission. Tell us about that work.
1: Actually, it's a commission I've been on for, I was seven years as commissioner. And this past year became the executive director. And it's a great group. We have four legislative commissioners and and about nine uh, regular commissioners. Many have served in the military. And I mentioned earlier base realignment and closure. The state of Pennsylvania uh, was greatly affected by base realignment closures in the past. So what we're doing uh, on the commission is really trying to take care of the, our remaining bases that exist and build them up as best we can to serve the Department of Defense. And we engage heavily with the community uh, outside the gates. A lot of states, 30-some states, do this very thing. And it's good. To, that's another good way to open up to the public, you know, to get to know the military. I enjoy that very much,
0: I got to ask you a question that's not on our list here. Is there a book in your future?
1: <laughs> you know people for years have been asking me that, and uh I don't know. I guess I could name ten people who would buy it, you know my family members, but i I'd have to give that more thought
0: well, I think you uh you have a lot of lessons to. Teach, and if it's done in the right way, I think it would be a a bestseller. Well, I'd certainly buy one.
1: (laughs) Ah, okay, I have 11.
0: Now you got 11. So I want to thank you so much for your time, uh, Rear Admiral Retired Nancy Lascavich, and uh, for your interest in in doing this for our listeners of Let's Talk Vets on WJFF Radio Catskill. Uh, Any closing thoughts?
1: Oh, it's been a great honor and pleasure doing this, Doug. Thank you and your listeners so much. Um, Just a, a few thoughts here at the end of things I've noticed in spending almost four decades on active duty in the U.S. Navy. And the bottom line for serving to me is when you're in the military, you will have high expectations placed on you more than ever. You will be more perplexed more than ever. You will be amazed more than ever of the things you get to do and see. You will be put under the microscope more than ever. You will be lonely more than ever. You will be gratified more than ever. You will be humbled more than ever. You will laugh at yourself more than ever. You will be admired more than ever. And above all, you'll always be held in high esteem. Doug, I found two great quotes I'd love to leave with everyone to think about. One comes from Indira Gandhi who said, "'My grandfather once told me "'that there were two kinds of people, "'those who do the work and those who take the credit. "'He told me to be in the first group, "'there is much less competition. And the second one is from General Norman Schwarzkopf. He said, leadership is a combination of strategy and character. If you must be without one, be without the strategy. And I just think they're wonderful quotes to live by. Bottom line, in the military, you work hard and you build your character. So I leave you with that. Again, it's been a great opportunity and, and pleasure for me.
0: Well, we'll say to you, thank you for, again for your time. Thank you for your service. And as far as your career goes, uh, mission accomplished.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a great honor.
0: So we want to thank Nancy Laskavich, retired Rear Admiral, for joining us on Let's Talk Vets. And we'd like to thank you for joining us as well. Please share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. You can email us at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed.